Welcome to Friendship with God. Today, Tom Cantor will teach us from Genesis chapter 15 on how God is a shield to Abraham so he wouldn't have to fear. Now, this message is available for free download at friendshipwithgod.org and on iTunes. To encourage you to support the Friendship with God radio program, we've got a wonderful offer we've been having here in the month of January. Tom Cantor has three books that he's written, Frequently Asked Questions by Jewish People, Prophecy and Fulfillments of the Lord Jesus Christ, and his own personal testimony, How a Jew Came to Know and Understand the Jewish Messiah, The Testimony of Tom Cantor. We're offering all three of these popular books in one book, one resource offer for January only, and we've got a limited supply of these. So for a donation of $30 or more today, we'll send you this great resource, this wonderful book, three books into one from Tom Cantor. So call us today at 1-800-247-3051. 1-800-247-3051. You'll also be supporting Jewish evangelism and have a matching donation given towards Israel Restoration Ministries and getting the gospel out to the Jewish people first. Now again, call us at 1-800-247-3051. You can call us now or after the program, or you can go to friendshipwithgod.org to order it on our online bookstore, friendshipwithgod.org. Now, here's Tom Cantor with our teaching from Genesis chapter 15. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word this morning. We pray that, Lord, you would enlighten our eyes with the same, Lord, enlightenment that when you said, let there be light. Speak it to us now that there might be light in our souls. In Jesus' name, amen. Genesis 15, 1. We're going to be covering this verse here this morning. After these things, the word of the Lord came unto Abram in a vision, saying, Fear not, Abram, I am thy shield and thy exceeding great reward. Now, in our last study, we started this. We saw in verse 1 what had happened to Abram as we read about these things, as this verse starts off. After these things, that's referred to in verse 1. Those were very disturbing things. So we could really plug that word in to this verse after these very disturbing things that had happened to Abram. We saw that these disturbing things were following the slaughter, or really in the slaughter of the kings where Abram nearly lost his life, we can imagine. The disturbing thing where Abram must have been covered with blood, as with all the killing one man after another in the slaughter. That's disturbing. The disturbing thing of having to face this disturbing character of the king of the Sodomites. And after all these disturbing things, God sends a very special word to Abraham. And what a word that was that he sent to Abraham. And that's where we're parked today. Because as Abraham had time to think of all those disturbing things that had happened to him, and the unknown, which was also disturbing to him, of what might happen to him, there's a lot of reasons for Abraham just to be a man of fear. There's a lot of reason for him to be afraid. So the first thing that God says to Abraham is, fear not. Don't be afraid. And then God does something very wonderful, as he always does, and that is he gives Abraham a reason to not be afraid. In our line of work, we always talk about evidence-based medicine. That's the big buzzword. We have a new test. We claim that it can detect tuberculosis more accurately than skin tests, and so we say that this is an evidence-based test, or we better makes that claim, because we did a clinical trial, and the clinical trial with patients who had TB, and we could demonstrate that the claim that our test can diagnose early TB 
is based on the evidence. So then when we go to schools and we say that they should test all of their teachers, let our lab test all their teachers with our new TB test so they don't spread TB to their students, then we show them the clinical trial evidence, and that shows that our tests can detect TB. And so we have a new biomolecule for cancer, and we want to make the claim that it can stop the growth of cancer. So what do we do? We do a clinical trial. We will do a clinical trial with patients with cancer so that we can say that our new therapeutic is able to stop cancer based on the evidence. And when we go to patients and we say we want to inject you with our new biomolecule for cancer, we'll show them the clinical trial evidence that demonstrates that this can stop cancer. That's meant by evidence-based evidence-based. Every claim or recommendation is based on evidence. As a matter of fact, the FDA can really be called claims police. That's what they are. They're the police in the claims. They look to see, I mean, companies would love to make certain claims and sell more product, make money. And so, but the FDA comes along and they look at that. They look to see if any company makes any claims that relate to the cure, mitigation, treatment, or prevention of disease in man or other animals. That's the phrase that's part of the charter for the FDA. And so the FDA looks to see whether there are any claims that anybody's making for the cure, mitigation, treatment, or prevention of disease or any other animal. That's what FDA calls man, another animal. And if you do do that, then they require that there be evidence. And they have to review the evidence, and they'll approve it. And if they approve it, they'll give you or they'll allow you to have the wording on the label. And companies who make claims that are not on their FDA-approved label are guilty of making off-label claims, which is what my whistleblower suit was about against Amgen. I accused them of making off-label claims. So this issue, that the label has to have the claims that have been approved by the FDA that are based on the evidence. And in essence, the FDA is making sure that the claims are evidence-based. Well, God makes also evidence-based claims. That's the point. And he wants us to have this evidence in our minds so that we can have evidence-based faith. And as a matter of fact, this book here, this is the book of the evidence. That's it. This is the book of the evidence that God has given to us. It's the record. For example, he says in Psalm 81.10, God says, I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. Open thy mouth wide, and I will fill it. So in that verse, God has made a claim. A claim that if the Jewish people open their mouth wide, then he's going to fill it. In other words, if anyone comes to God, this is the claim. If anyone comes to God and opens his mouth wide and cries to God to satisfy the deep needs of his heart, the deep longings of his heart, He claims that he will, he promises, he claims that he'll satisfy. He'll abundantly satisfy. Now that's a claim. Open thy mouth wide and I will fill it. The FDA were around, they would say that's a claim. So, and they would also say, where's the evidence for that claim? So God provides the evidence, he says, from history when he says, I am the Lord thy God, which brought thee out of the land of Egypt. See, that's history. That's the evidence. So he's saying to them that their ancestors in the desert, that he supplied for them manna. He's saying to them that there was, and he wants them to think, there was not one day that went out of 40 years in which the millions of Jewish people who were back there in that desert for 40 years. So there was 2 million people. That's 80 million man years. I don't know, that doesn't mean anything. But anyway, 
Forty years, millions of Jewish people never missed a meal. They never went hungry. They never did. And so God is saying that from Psalm 81.10. He's saying to them, now you have a deep hunger in your heart, a thirst in your soul. Come to me. I will fill it. I will fill that hunger in your soul. I will fill that thirst within you. Come to me. Because that great big hole in your heart, that's emptiness that you feel, I can feel that. I will feel that if you come to me. Me. See, that's the same thing that the Lord Jesus Christ said, and if you like to turn to that in John 6.35, is the same claim that he made in John 6.35 when it says, um, John 6.35 says, and Jesus said unto them, this is one of the great I am verses, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth on me shall never thirst. Now that's the claim. That's a claim right there. He that cometh to me shall never hunger. He's claiming that. He that believeth on me shall never thirst. He's claiming that. And so the question is, where's the evidence for that claim? The evidence in that claim is found in the verses above it. In verses 32, where it starts off. And look at the evidence that he gives. Then Jesus said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Moses gave you not that bread from heaven, but my Father giveth you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he which cometh down from heaven and giveth life for the world. Then said they unto him, Lord, evermore give us this bread. And Jesus said unto him, I am the bread of life. He that cometh to me shall never hunger, and he that believeth in me shall never thirst. See what he's doing here? He says the evidence is the same thing we just talked about with the two million people for the 40 years. It's the manna. It's all about the manna. It's all about Psalm 8110. It's the manna. That means that whenever we encounter hunger in our soul, or a hungry soul, or a thirsty soul, God wants us to point to the history of the provision of the manna as evidence that God can satisfy the deep longings of the heart. That's the point. And now God says to Abraham that he should not fear. He should not fear. And so he provides the evidence for this by calling out these two symbols or two elements here, the shield and a reward. Now, what has Abraham just been thinking about? He's been thinking about the slaughter of the kings. He's been going over this. It's disturbing with the slashing and the blood and the so forth, and that he was protected by the shield. Abraham was protected by the shield. And he did not come back empty-handed. Those are the two things. Abraham's thinking about he was protected by the shield, and he was thinking that he did not come back empty-handed. And so he had this large reward in his hand, so much so that the king of Sodom had his eye, so did a lot of people, on that reward. So God says to Abraham, Abraham, your shield that I caused to protect you and the reward that I caused you to be able to take are the evidences for why you should now not fear. So when God made this claim to Abraham that he should not fear, he calls out two evidences to support his claim for not fearing, the protection that he gave him, the shield, and the provision that he gave him, the reward. And he's just returned from the slaughter. And he has his life and he has his, his wealth that he's got before he gives it up. So, in our last study, we considered how a shield has two sides. The one side that you stand behind, and the other side that you stand in front of, or the side that protects you, or the side that faces the enemy. And we imagined Abraham last week, we imagined Abraham sitting down and looking at his shield from those two sides. And he looks at the side of the shield, he stands behind the shield, he looks at the shield where he stood, and he thinks to himself, well, I was safe behind this shield. This shield really did the job. When I stand 
stand behind this shield now, I can say, this is the shield of Abraham, as he holds it up there. When I look at the shield from behind, it's a shield that protected me. That's what he gets from it. So from behind this shield, Abraham looked at the shield subjectively, what it did for him. And it protected him. And he said, this is a great shield. I stand behind it now. It protects me. I needed that shield to protect me. This is my shield. I own this shield. And then as Abraham turns the shield around and he looks at the shield from the other side, he now looks at it objectively. And looking at the shield objectively, he appreciates all that the shield endured. He sees the slash marks, as we said. He sees the stab marks in the shield. He remembers holding onto that shield as he bore the slash and stabs the shield was protecting him from. So from that angle, it's not the shield of Abraham, but Abraham could say, I want everyone to know this shield. He already said this. I want everybody to know this shield is the shield of Abraham. But standing in front of it now, I see something different. This is a shield now to me. This is a shield to me. It's the shield. When I stand behind it, it's the shield of Abraham. When I stand in front of it, it's the shield to Abraham because I can see it objectively. And now I see all that this shield endured to save me. I can see it so clearly now. It's in front of me now. It's a shield to me. And that one word, to Abraham, is so very, very important. That's how the Hebrew reads. It doesn't read like what says here, I am thy shield. It reads, it reads, I am the shield to you, Abraham. And so he's saying here, I am a shield to you. So you always remember, I want you to always remember that God used the word to in this verse when he said, I am a shield to you. There's a nice reminder for us of the word to. It's found in the name of the Israeli airlines. You know, the name of the Israeli airlines. A very interesting name, the name of the Israeli airlines. It's, it's not a name like American Airlines or Japan Airlines or Air France or British Airways. It's not like a name like that. You think they should have called it that, you know? They should have called it Israeli Airlines or Air Israel or Hebrew National Airlines. <laughs> but then you'd think you're riding in a hot dog. <laughs> so that wouldn't work. You can't call it Hebrew National Airlines. So instead, the name of the Israeli airlines is like no other name, of course, like no other name of any other airlines, because what it does, the name of the Israeli airlines, is it describes two parts about their company. It describes the what and the how of the Israeli airlines. So it's made up of two words, El, which does not mean God, and Al. So the name is El Al Airlines, as you know. And those two words describe the what and the how of the airlines. The word L means two. That's the word in our text here, two. Only they shorten a little bit, but it still means that. It's L and it means two, and that describes the what of their airlines. Their company is dedicated to taking you to your destination. At least you hope so. The other word, Al, it means on. That means on. And that describes how the airline is going to take you to your destination. It's going to be on their planes. So the company is saying in their names, come to our company and we'll take you to L, your destination, on Al, our plane. So every time you see L, Al, then you'll think it means to on. Well, I hope you do. And I want you to also think of that first word, L, because that's the word that God used here in Genesis 15.1 when he said, I am a shield to you, a shield to you. Tom, today you taught us that God said to Abraham that he should stop and look at how God had been a shield to him. And that should encourage Abraham, looking back on that. Now, what does the Bible say on how we benefit when we set our focus on him? You know, the first thing that's really interesting is that, is that 
Setting our focus on the Lord Jesus Christ is 100% our choice. God will never force us to set our focus on him. As a matter of fact, God sets before us many, many, many things for us to set our focus on, for us to become distracted on, and it's our choice as to whether or not we're going to set our focus on him. He wants us to set our focus on him. And so we have a history in Luke chapter 10 about two individuals, and one of them set her focus, two women, one of them set her focus on the Lord Jesus Christ, and another one um, had her focus not on the Lord Jesus Christ. And so here's what the passage says in Luke 10, 38 through 42. Now it came to pass as they went that they entered, that they that he entered into a certain village, and a certain woman named Martha received him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary, which also sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was cumbered about with much serving and came to him and said, Lord, dost thou not care that my sister hath left me to serve alone? Bid her therefore that she help me. And Jesus answered and said unto her, Martha, Martha, thou art careful and troubled about many things, but one thing is needful. And Mary hath chosen that good part, which shall not be taken away from her. So here we have two sisters. We have Martha. And Martha is, as the Lord said, she is uh, all worked up. She's all cumbered about. She's troubled is the word. She's disturbed about many things, many things that were related to serving. Now, serving needed to be accomplished, yes. But this was a time when the master was present, when the Lord Jesus Christ was then in the, there in the, in the midst. And so this was a time when Martha, she was distracted away from setting her focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. And her focus was the, was therefore on, is all the place set? Is all the food prepared? Is everything, is the beverages ready? Is there many things? Is the place swept? I don't know. It just says many things. And we can imagine how many things. But whereas her focus was on many things, the Lord said about Mary, one thing just one thing. So the question is, what benefit do we have when we when we set our focus on him? For one thing, life gets so beautifully simple. It's not a case of, oh, this and that, and my head is just going crazy because I'm being torn from this side to that side. But he says, one thing. And he says, one thing is needful. This is what now, the other should be done. But, but in comparison, he said what Mary had done was needful. This is what we need to do. This is what we must do. And this is a choice. That's why he said Mary has chosen. And it's called a good part the good part. And he says, and I will make sure that this is not taken away from her. It's very interesting in the tabernacle of the mercy seat. The mercy seat was the place where God met with man. There's a God met with man in the inner place in the Holy of Holies over the ark in that lid area called the mercy seat. And that's where God met with man. And what's so interesting about that mercy seat is that there were two cherubims at either side over this lid with their wings uh, in a protecting position there. And they're looking at each other. And cherubims always protect God's interests. And so whenever you and I decide we are going to meet with God, we are going to choose that good part. We are going to focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. Then, as symbolized by those cherubims, God says, and I will make sure that that is not taken away from you. I will make a way for you to meet with me, for you to worship me. Because what was Mary doing? 
doing. It says so clearly here that Mary was sitting at Jesus' feet and hearing his word. That's what it means to focus on him. Sitting at his feet is to call him Lord. It's to worship him as God, as to say he is the Adonai. He is my master. He is the one who is my ruler. To hear his word is to be immersed in the word of God, which is the word of the Lord Jesus Christ. It is to be it is to be totally consumed with his word. As he said, when he was referring to the analogy of the manna falling from heaven, he said, what happened? Your life depended on it. Your life depended on it. So you looked up and mysteriously and miraculously bread fell from the skies and you ate that bread. And that was all done to teach you a lesson, the Lord Jesus Christ said. Well, actually, Moses said, but the Lord Jesus Christ repeated it. He said he humbled you and made you to know. By that experience, he humbled you. By that experience, he made you to know. What did he make him to know? That man doth not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God doth man live. What was Mary doing? She was living as she was sitting at Jesus' feet, and she was hearing his word. And as she was sitting at his feet, we can see the picture. She's sitting at his feet. She's looking up at him. His mouth is speaking. The words are falling from his mouth on her. And she's eating those words. And she's living inside. And that's the picture that God had that Moses was telling about the manna that falling from heaven. And that's the picture that we see here. And that's the picture also that he says, I want you to look at that, Martha, because Mary is doing the one thing that is needful. What's the one thing needful? Worshiping the Lord Jesus Christ and living on his word. In other words, every word that comes out of his mouth, every word from the Bible, recognizing that comes out of the mouth of God and just consuming it, thinking about it, meditating on it, incorporating it into our lives, obeying it. That's all what's meant by sitting and hearing his word. It's not just means to become aware of his word, but it's like, oh, he said this. I was looking for something that I could claim as a promise. I just heard it. That's good. I'll do it. I was looking for something that I could obey that I haven't obeyed in the past. That's good. I got it. I'll do it. That's what it means to hear his word and to hear his word because that's what the Shema is all about. It's putting the focus on the Lord Jesus Christ. When it says Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Echad, hear O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy soul, with all thy might. That's the next verse after the Shema. In other words, hear O Israel, set your focus, set your affections on the Lord Jesus Christ such that you love him with all of your heart, such that you love him with all of your soul, such that you love him with all of your might. And what will be, as you ask the question, what will be one of the benefits as we set our focus on him is Isaiah 26, 3. Thou will keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, just like the stays on a mast of a ship. They hold that mast up when the wind comes and wants to knock it down. Oh no, those stays are holding that mast up. So God says, you be the stays that keep your mind set on the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Paul said, set your affection on things above. His mind is stayed on thee. Why are we kept in perfect peace? Because our mind is stayed on him and because we trust in him. That's what David meant when he said in Psalm 16, 8, I have set 
the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be moved. So what are the benefits? A perfect peace. A perfect peace. A perfect peace is a peace with God, and it's a peace of God. When I receive the Lord Jesus Christ, I have peace with God, but only as I set my mind on him do I have the peace of God, a perfect peace, and that for a perfect stability. Because he's at my right hand, I shall not be moved. So therefore, we set our hearts on the Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you for joining Tom Cantor and the Friendship with God radio program today. And we'd like to encourage you to make a contribution to this Bible teaching radio program today. Now, 100% of it will continue to keep this radio program going on this station and in your city. But we'll also have a 100% matching donation from Israel Restoration Ministries and our Jewish Evangelism Outreach Program. So with your contribution of any amount, we get another contribution of 100% that goes towards Jewish evangelism to match your donation. Now, we reach 1.5 million lost Jewish people a year, as well as many Gentiles. And we'd like to encourage you to give a donation. It's 100% tax deductible, and it goes 100% towards Jewish evangelism and 100% towards keeping this radio program going on your station in your city. And none of your donation goes towards administration costs. So again, go to friendshipwithgod.org to donate online, friendshipwithgod.org, or you can call us at 1-800-247-3051, 1-800-247-3051. Now, our January resources month, for a donation of $30 or more, you get three Tom Cantor books in one January resource compilation book. So it's Frequently Asked Questions by Tom Cantor, Prophecy and Fulfillments of the Lord Jesus Christ, and Tom Cantor's Life Story, all three of those books in one, our January resource. So call us today for a $30 or more donation. We'll send that to you. 1-800-247-3051. You get three Tom Cantor books in one January resource compilation book. So call us today for a $30 or more donation. We'll send that to you. 1-800-247-3051. 1-800-247-3051. 3051. Again, that's 1-800-247-3051, or you can order online at friendshipwithgod.org. Thanks for listening, and join us again tomorrow at this same time.